Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already... Get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. If you're a regular listener, you've already heard Craig Rodwell's name and voice in several past episodes. That's because he was one of the most consequential, fearless, and visionary activists of the 1960s and early 70s. The country's first gay rights protest on record in 1964 in front of New York City's Whitehall Army Induction Center? Craig was there. The landmark 1966 sip-in at Julius's, the legendary gay bar in Greenwich Village? Check. The annual Reminder Day protests in Philadelphia? Check. Then in 1967, Craig opened the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, one of the first gay bookstores in the world. It quickly became a hub for gay rights organizing in New York City. And to mark the first anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, he co-organized the inaugural Christopher Street Liberation Day March in 1970, the blueprint for the Pride Marches and Celebrations now attended by millions of people around the world each year. And all of that before he celebrated his 30th birthday. But then, Craig's radicalization had begun very early. As you're about to hear, he traced back its roots to a night of cruising in downtown Chicago when he was 14 years old, a night that ended in his arrest. Fair warning. In this episode, Craig paints a picture of gay cruising life in the 1950s, the choreography of it, the danger of it, and for young Craig, the consuming thrill of it. Craig was precocious in every way, and in his account of his early sexual adventures, he sounds completely empowered. But for all of Craig's sex positivity, he was just a young teenager at the time. If hearing about that will make you uncomfortable, you may want to give this episode a pass. So here's the scene. I meet up with Craig at his bookshop just down the block from the Stonewall Inn. It's in an old brick row house with a short stoop and a picture window filled with books overlooking Christopher Street. The circumstances are less than ideal. I have a terrible cold, and Craig has a train to catch and has just an hour to spare. But we cover plenty of ground. Craig's a talker, and he's got an arsenal of stories at the ready for me. We start at the beginning. Craig, who was born in Chicago in 1940, was just an infant when his parents separated. 
As a single working woman, his mother struggled to provide care for her young son, so she sent him to a small Christian science boarding school northwest of the city. I asked him what life at the school was like. Interview with Craig Rodwell, February 17th, Friday noon. Location, Craig Rodwell Store, the Oscar Wilde Bookshop, New York City. My name is Eric Marcus. Well, it was officially the Institution for Problem Boys. Um, I never fully understood why I was there. I mean, I've always been sort of a problem. Anyway, I lived there from age 6 to almost 14. And it was an all-boys school, way out in the country, the woods all around. It was a very hothouse atmosphere. We had no contact with the outside world, um, except for television. On Friday nights, we were allowed to watch I Remember Mama, and they turned it off during the commercials, even. Uh, anyway, we, uh, we slept in dorms, bunk beds, about 15 of us in a dorm. And the only got to be like 11, uh, many of us developed crushes on other boys. I mean, like heterosexuals would have so the same kind of thing. that's where you first discovered... My um, feelings, and they were very natural. Right, understandably, in that environment. It's all of us there were. So by the, when, yeah. when you were 14, you already had a great sense of... Yes, of identity. Yeah. I thought the whole world was <laughs> like me. Tell me what happened when you were 14 years old. That I was arrested? Yeah. Well, it would have been a typical uh, evening. I went to live with my mother in uh, Chicago during high school. I would have gotten home from high school usually around 3. My mother didn't get home from work till 6. Um, and by then I, d I developed a routine of... Uh, I've been out cruising for a number of months. I'd met this guy from a uh, Northwestern University student, and he told me the word gay and where to go. He picked me up on the street. Uh, where the cruising areas were and what have you. So I was down there the next day, literally. You were a precocious youngster then. Well, I, I guess that's the word for it. Uh, I didn't have mommy and daddy standing over me during my formative years telling me what to do and think. And mm -hmm. We had uh, superintendents and house mothers in the institution, but they were more disciplinary figures. So I had a lot of mental freedom as a child to think for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and my mother really had no control over me, even at that age. And two or three nights a week, I would get the subway, with the L, as we call it in Chicago, and go down to uh, get off at uh, Division Street, which was the major cruising area at the time, and just walk around the neighborhood to Bughouse Square and down Division and up around Clark and Dearborn. For hours, sometimes, I would walk around cruising, stand out in front of gay bars. You couldn't and, go in? No, no. But I'd stand out in front of or across the street or down a couple stores down or something. And I met an awful, I met hundreds of guys during high school. Most of them were scared off from me when they realized how young I was. I always tried to look older and act older. Uh, and I could pass for 17 when I was 13 or 14. Anyway, I met this guy one night. I remember I was standing, at, one of my things would be, if I got tired of walking around, I'd stand uh, at a bus stop. Because I always had to watch for cops back then. If you saw a cop car, you know, you made sure you weren't standing still from one thing. And this is Chicago, 1954, I'm talking about right now. Uh, to the cops, homosexuals were just a step up from uh, murderers, and we were treated that way. Uh, and they had total license and freedom to, to harass us on the street, make comments to us, hit us, whatever. Uh, so I would stand at a bus stop 
And even then, cops would stop occasionally and say, what are you doing here, you know? And I said, oh, I'm waiting for the bus. That would be my excuse. Um, anyway, I was standing at that bus stop at the corner of Division and uh, Dearborn. And this guy picked me up. His name was Frank Bucalo, a working-class dishwasher in his 30s, I think. How did he pick you up? How did he let you know? He, he was probably just stopped, looked at him. You know, you have Jimmy Cruz, honey? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you you stand there, or when you pass somebody when you're walking, you, you look at them and they look at you, and uh, maybe perhaps you go a few steps and turn around and see if they're looking back, to see if you're looking back, to see if they're looking back, to see if you're looking back. Uh, <laughs> you get the picture? Yes. Anyway, so I went to the guy's, uh, he lived in a, what would you call an SRO today, simple furnished room, uh, just a sink in the room, toilet down the hall. And... Uh, were you frightened? Oh, God, no. This is, this is what I live for, literally. I and mean, it's all I thought about all day long was so I could get downtown and go cruising. Uh -huh. uh, it was, oh, it was just, I, I get thrilled now even thinking about it, those, uh -huh. those, those times. I had a great sense of freedom about it and adventure. And, oh, I met all kinds of guys, Air Force guys, cops, you name it. I met all kinds of guys during high school. So you went back and, to his room? Back to his room. Had sex. I don't remember. It was very simple sex. Very sweet guy. And I remember I washed my hands in his sink afterwards, and there was some kind of soap that I'd, I guess it had smell, a perfume in it or something. I'd never come across that before. And I mentioned it to him, and he insisted on giving me a bar of the, you know, stolen paper and stuff. And then he was walking me back to the, uh, the subway. Oh, and I should add here that at that time in Chicago, there was a curfew. If you were under 17, you had to be off the streets by 10 o'clock, unless you were with uh, a relative. Mm -hmm. And it was past 10 o'clock? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Probably around midnight, mm -hmm. something like that. What did your mother think with you being out until midnight? Um, what I would do is when I got on the L going back home, which was way north, almost to Evanston, so it was like a half-hour ride, I would sit there and go over and over in my head the story about what I would tell her why I was where I was. What kinds of stories did you tell? Oh, bowling with the kids in school. Uh, that was, I used that a lot. <laughs> I invented friends I was with. <laughs> and she didn't worry that you were out until midnight? She worried. Uh -huh. And sometimes she would wait up for me. I was out till one or two and three in the morning sometimes. Oh, she would get mad and this and that. And she would threaten me with the police, you know, because I wasn't supposed to be staying out that late. But she hadn't really raised me. She was more of a caretaker at that point. Anyway, so he was walking me back to the subway. And we got to the corner of Clark and Schiller. And we just crossed the street. Uh, and I, I can't remember if they were plain clothes or in uniform. I think they were in uniform. All of a sudden, these two or three cops just appeared, what seemed to be out of nowhere. Uh, the first thing they asked me was how old I was. And I summoned up my deepest voice and said, 17. Um, but they knew better. And also it was an area that I didn't realize at the time, but there was a lot of young teenage boy hustlers in the area. And then they asked me who the other guy was. And I said, he's my uncle. Uh, and then they took us into the police station. They had separated us at this point. I never saw him again until court. You must have been frightened by them. Yeah, but not... Uh, I would say I was more angry than frightened. It was a mixture of the two. I mean, because I knew what was happening was an assault on, on our freedom and my freedom and Frank McCullough's freedom. 
uh, I'd heard of the Managing Society at this point. One guy I'd met at the beach, what we called the beach, Oak Street Beach. His name was Harry uh, Dilworth. He was a member of Manachine. Remember, he had these Manachine reviews and won magazines on his uh, coffee table in his apartment. And uh, I was just fascinated by them. Just the idea that he was a uh, gay man organizing. And at first I'd heard of it. I remember how excited I was when I first heard that. Um, so they separated you. Right. Took us to the police station. But I don't know where they must put him in a cell. I was never put in a cell, in a room. Anyway, the cop came in. It was a room with a table. I was sitting at a table, and one of the cops came in. Remember, he sat down and banged his fist on the table and said, all right, you might as well tell me the truth right now. We've called your mother, and I had a stepfather at that point. My mother had remarried, and your stepfather, and they're on the way down here. So I told him the truth. Why? I figured I had nothing to lose. You know, since my mother was come down, first they were going to find out that I was 14. You know, this guy wasn't my uncle. And uh, I've always believed in the power of the truth, figuring that if I tell the truth, no harm can come. Your mother arrives. Right. She must not have... Speechless. Been. She was not <laughs> Not pleased, right, but she didn't verbalize it. And I th I'm trying to remember, I think they told her that they'd arrested me for soliciting older men. Oh, my. In other words, male prostitution. Uh -huh. Uh, and my mother's a very simple, she was born on a farm, you know, went through depression. To her, this was just... <laughs> Shocking. So she came down and got me. I don't think she said a word. Uh, and then during the next uh, two or three months, there was a series of uh, hearings and... What happened during the hearings? You had to go down to court? Yeah, she would drive me down there, and I'd have to take a day off from school, and she'd have to take a day off from work. And she didn't speak to me for two, a number of months except for what absolutely had to be said. And this other man was in jail the entire time? Yeah. yeah. I don't think he was ever able to post bail. Uh, first was a grand jury hearing. Uh, that's the most vivid in my mind. The uh, district attorney questioned me. And again, I just told the truth. Um, Did you feel then that you had done anything wrong? Of course not. Absolutely not. So was there ultimately a trial? Mm-hmm. And there was a trial. A number of weeks. There might have been a couple of months later. And then there was other people I had to go talk to. I didn't really know who they were. They were just people I had to tell. I had to repeat the, my story over and over and over again. There was a hearing for me, a juvenile hearing of some kind. And I remember I was sitting there with my mother when the hearing officer, judge, whatever, was a woman. She sentenced me to uh, uh, reformatory. And uh, back then you said reformatory to a kid. And it puts the fear of, you know, the Jesus into them. So I remember when she sentenced me. And my mother screamed, I remember, and begged. I've never heard my mother, she's a rather outwardly unemotional kind of person, begged this woman. She would do anything if they wouldn't send me away. And uh, they didn't. I was put on probation for two years. I had to report to a probation officer. What were you guilty of? Uh... Juvenile delinquency, I guess, was the... <laughs> they still believed that I was a, a teenage prostitute, boy prostitute. I remember the DA, during Bacallo's trial, getting me out in the corridor, like this, up against the wall. He was holding you by your collar? Yeah, like this, up against the wall, just furious with me, wanting me to testify the guy had paid me money. And it wasn't true. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even know what prostitution was. I literally didn't know what prostitution was. But this DA just couldn't believe this 14-year-old kid 
would go out cruising the streets looking for men to go home and make love with. Mm -hmm. It was totally beyond his capability of understanding. So you were sentenced to two years probation. And my mother had to send me to a fucking psychiatrist. How often did you go? Oh, I think it was once a week or something like that. He was this nice little guy. And I remember the first time we went up there, uh, he told me about ancient Greece. Homosexuality <laughs> was normal or something. And then, again, looking back on it, uh, he was obviously very hip and very wise and, and knew what was going on, whereas the cops didn't. Mm -hmm. I'd invented girlfriends and stuff at that point for the probation officer. Those, I did tell lies to him. Uh, my mother would... We had social center dances in uh, high school and Friday nights in, in the gym. And she would drive me over there to the gym, watch me go up into the into these big doors and into the gym. And then I'd watch for her to drive away. And I'd go out and get the L and go downtown. This is like two weeks after my arrest. You know. What were you looking for downtown? Guys. Just the, all kinds of guys. Uh -huh. Was it love? Was it just sex? Was it... Oh, I, at, at that age, you have this... Uh, fantasy of 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 love, this fantasy of uh, caring or something. But it was closeness more than anything that I wanted. I just knew that I loved men. I would prefer to have had affairs with guys in, in school. I was in crushes on other, you know, guys my own age in school. But there's nothing I could do about that. I couldn't ask them to dance or, you know, anything like that. Um. That experience must have had an impact on you, and looking back on it now... Well, it made me an angry queer. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I still am. Because of Craig Rodwell's age and his mother pleading on his behalf, Craig got to go home. Frank Piccolo, who was arrested along with him, was not so lucky. As Craig recalled in various interviews, Piccolo was sentenced to three to five years in prison for committing a so-called crime against nature. In a 1970 oral history conducted by Kayla Hoosen and John Francis Hunter for the book The Gay Crusaders, Craig was asked whether the experience had left him with a sense of guilt. He said it had, and that he'd often wanted to find Piccolo and, quote, somehow make up for what the court did to him. Craig Rodwell died of stomach cancer on June 18, 1993. He was 52. He was survived by his mother. Craig's store, the Oscar Wilde Bookshop, continued on for another 16 years. Many thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible, including producer Inga Detaya, audio engineer Kathleen Conti, researcher Brian Faree, photo editor Michael Green, and our social media producers Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Special thanks to our founding editor and producer, Sarah Burningham, and our founding production partner, Jenna Weiss-Berman at Pineapple Street Studios. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Thank you also to all the people who pitched in to help us try to learn more about Frank Piccolo's fate. Unfortunately, we all came up empty-handed. And thanks to the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division for their assistance with photos and other images. Season 11 of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, the Calamus Foundation, Christopher Street Financial, Mary Cadigan and Lee Wilson, Louis Bradbury, David Carollo, Lee Shear, the Dancer Family, Andra and Erwin Press, and Greg Adgate, who made a donation in honor of his daughters Anna and Grace. <laughs>
Thanks, Greg. Head to makinggayhistory.com where you'll find all our previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature. It's also where you'll see never-before-publicly-seen photos from Craig Rodwell's childhood. If you've already subscribed to our brand-new Patreon channel, this week you'll have access to our very first post, a video of my recent conversation with Patrick Hines, the podcast star and founder of The Obsessed Network, who is obsessed with Craig Rodwell. We talk about Craig's place in LGBTQ history, and I play Patrick some archival audio that pits Craig against Larry Kramer over Kramer's controversial 1978 novel, Faggots. If you're not a patron yet, consider becoming one today so you don't miss out on any exclusive content. For a monthly donation of $5, you'll get previously unreleased bonus clips from my archive and new video interviews with some of the people we featured, as well as other LGBTQ history makers. Find out more about joining Making Gay History's Patreon community and sign up at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory or go to makinggayhistory.com and click on the Patreon link in the homepage banner. I'm Eric Marcus. So long, until next time.